action by Mexico and other countries in response to his threats. We'll see if that's enough, but uh, DHS officials said today that they have plans on the shelf they can dust off. You've been in the agency. How difficult would it be for them to, in a week's time, pull something off, like shutting it completely down? Yeah, I mean, it would be very difficult. They do have plans on the books, but you would it, closing the border would require an extensive interagency effort. Uh, people would already have to have been meeting from various agencies. They'd have to be thinking about what are the, 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 the economic implications, what are the security implications. The problem is shutting down the border, closing the ports of entry, will have no impact from a security perspective. Illegal drugs are still going to get across the border. Um, illegal immigrants are going to be able to get across the border. What it will do is cause severe economic harm to the United States, and that's why we don't shut the border down. And we're going to get into that, but Mary Alice, a good part of this does seem to be politics. We weren't talking about the border just two weeks ago, and all of a sudden, here we are again. He's pulled the lever. Um, well, he and says that's because there's a crisis. He says the numbers are reaching dramatic right. and drastic levels. But politically, the president runs the risk of making empty threats. If he continues mm -hmm. to say that he's willing to take these drastic measures and then does not follow through with that, where does that leave? Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, all these other countries he says he needs to work with. But it doesn't seem like he's working with them on any realistic level. And John, it's also not clear on that point how the threat of cutting off funding right. to the Northern Triangle countries is going to help this process. And just right. your your uh, successor, Kirsten Nielsen, just came back from those countries and said she'd brokered a historic compromise. It seems like this would undercut that. Exactly. I mean, the reason why families are fleeing Central American countries is because of the violence, the persecution. They are scared that their kids will, will be harmed physically. So they're fleeing their countries of origin. Uh, and uh, by cutting off the aid, uh, you, you threaten to make the situation worse. And you're right. While the numbers are uh, increased over, say, last year or the year before, or even during the Obama administration, if you go back 12, 13, 14 years, the numbers are still well below uh, the well over 1.2 million people uh, apprehended by CBS. Or Border Patrol each year. So the numbers are up uh, compared to last year or the year before, but they're way down from, say, the beginning of the, the two 2000s. And our reporter Jordan Phelps is over at the White House right now. She's been talking to officials. Sarah Sanders did a little uh, impromptu briefing earlier. Jordan, uh, you do get the sense that officials in the West Wing are scrambling here uh, in response to the president's tweet threats. Uh, and also, you've done some reporting that uh, the economic advisors to the president are preparing reports to make sure he's aware of the damage, uh, economic damage, that this could do. Devin, the scramble is real. I spent the better part of yesterday trying to get answers from White House officials about how they were planning to roll out this shutdown of the border. But as you saw today with Sarah's statement for saying the president isn't working on any timeline after the president specifically threatened just four days ago that he would shut down the border this week. And then from the president himself saying he hasn't made that intention known. Uh, that is a huge shift, Devin, and it shows an attempt to backpedal uh, on this. The president uh, surely has been briefed on the major and significant economic ramifications that such a shutdown would mean. Uh, his council of advisors, economic advisors, are working on reports to show the president what this would mean economically if he were to shut down the border. And Devin, as we've been reporting out, 40% of our produce comes up through Mexico. 1.6 million in trade goes across that border every day. Uh, so this would hit American consumers in their pocketbooks almost immediately if he were to follow through. So you've got to think that those economic ramifications uh, played into the president's backpedal here.
And John, what would we see if if they do in fact pull the trigger and shut these things down at the end of the week? What security-wise, what we see well, down there? That's the key question because we're already seeing what we will see because DHS has put inadequate resources at the ports of entry to process people who are under international law legally seeking asylum at the ports. So we're already seeing that they're not going to the ports; they're going to other parts of the border. They're crossing. They're presenting themselves to border patrol officers and and making their asylum claims. So all we're going to do is see those numbers. Increase. And we do know that the Homeland Security Secretary, Kirsten Nielsen, flew back overnight. She was just 24 hours overseas at a, at a big cybersecurity conference, a big deal uh, right now. She certainly is showing some urgency on this, the unpredictability of the president playing into all this. We asked her predecessor just a couple days ago here in the briefing room about uh, the impact that this border focus would have on, on our security uh, and what she recommended about it. Here's a little bit of that. You were the third ever Homeland Security Secretary since the agency was created uh, shortly after 9-11. How, how do you rate your the current Homeland Security Secretary, Christian Nielsen? How's she doing in your view? You know, I think, um, I think she's distracted. Uh, I think she's uh, distracted by the president who is so focused on the southwest border. Um, and so some of these other, I think, greater risks to the safety and security of the American people don't, at least from my perspective, get the kind of attention they get, they deserve. So fair criticism, John? Yeah, absolutely. It's not the Department of Immigration. It's the Department of Homeland Security. It's supposed to be focused on terrorism. It's supposed to be focused on cybersecurity. It's supposed to be protecting our critical infrastructure. It's supposed to be focused on dealing with uh, drugs that are coming into the country that are fueling, you know, the most, the, the largest number of overdoses we've seen in a, in a large period of time. This department is almost singularly focused on the southwest border and on immigration. And I, I'm concerned that it's distracting them from their other more vital missions. Some security threats that perhaps are getting over look certainly economic risks to this whole policy as well Mary Alice well, it's interesting that this is the president who has prided himself on boosting the American economy. He says that he's bringing in jobs. He's figuring out new trade deals. He's the one that is helping to usher in a new era of economic success. And so for him to sort of play loose with um, these big threats, I think, has a lot of people scratching their a heads. A huge sector of the economy uh, goes deals with the southern border. $1.6 billion in daily trade. I think we have the numbers in the biggest industry uh, we learned today because of some outspoken groups uh, is the auto industry. Mm -hmm. Billions and billions of dollars of parts are exported and imported across that southern border. Uh, we caught up just a short time ago with the vice president for the Center of Automotive Research, Kristen Gicek. She is an analyst, independent, nonpartisan analyst uh, who offered a pretty stark warning about what this will do to the auto sector if the president shuts it down. Take a listen. Well, it would be very devastating for the auto industry. We have a very integrated supply chain here in North America, and auto suppliers uh, in Mexico and auto suppliers in the U.S. are sending parts and components across that border every day in huge quantities. So about 37% of our parts imports come from Mexico, and some of them are really critical parts that are in almost every vehicle we build in the U.S. We think so that auto production would shut down within a week. Within a week, uh, auto yeah. production across the United States would shut down if the border is closed. Yes, absolutely. And, and we've got plenty of examples of where that has happened on a much smaller scale. So last year, there was a, a, fly, a fire in a supplier in West Michigan that shut down all of Ford's F-Series pickup truck production um, for a couple of weeks while they worked that out and, and try to rearrange that. And that was just one part, one set of parts. And this is a whole host of parts that come from Mexico some of which are really critical 
and have to be, you know, you can't build a car with only half the parts or 98% of the parts. You need all of them. Help us drill down a little bit on that. Are, are there certain uh, border uh, crossings, Kristen, that are more critical than others when it comes to these parts? Is, uh, presumably, the administration is sort of starting to take into account some of the commerce, and maybe they could only close some of them? Um, yeah, I mean, there are a few that are more critical for automotive trade, certainly, but, you know, it's, it's a very wide border, and there's automotive production throughout Mexico, and not just Mexico, but... Uh, Central and South America that many of those parts come via train or, or over the over the over the road to the U.S. through the Mexican border. So, um, you know, we're looking at a, a very widespread uh, impact and it wouldn't just be, you know, this, you know, this one crossing is, is where it all comes through. It comes through very many of them. And finally, Kristen, you have been tweeting about the prospect of a border shutdown sparking a recession in this country. Is that in any way overblown? Could we really be staring down a possible recession from this? We absolutely could. Now, recoveries don't die of old age. They die of, of policy mistakes, usually, or you know, external factors. And, and this might be a combination of both. Uh, the auto industry is in every state across the country, but it's very heavily concentrated in the corridor between Michigan and Texas. Uh, the U.S. South, uh, of course, participating in the auto industry as well. And, you know, it's just so large that it is enough to, to cause that kind of devastation fairly quickly. So we, you know, it depends how long it goes on. It depends uh, whether there are some carve-outs. But if there's a complete and total shutdown of, of parts imports from Mexico and exports to Mexico, then we think we could see a recession uh, taking hold this year. It certainly would be an unprecedented move, one that a lot of people are watching closely, uh, including and especially the auto industry in this country. Uh, Kistrin Gicek, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us in the briefing room. You're very welcome. Thank you. And our thanks to John Cohen as well. ABC News contributor had to run for his uh, expertise in this story. Uh, not going to end uh, anytime soon, Mary Alice. We're going to keep our eyes. The president headed to the border this week as well. Yeah, and, and 2020 candidates continue to talk about it. I mean, he is putting political pressure on Democrats to come to the table and continue to address immigration. Another big topic on the campaign trail and here in Washington is the president's tweet storm offensive uh, against Puerto Rico overnight, taking them on again, a familiar foe of this president, uh, this time dealing with the uh, disaster relief bill, which failed in the Senate overnight. This is a uh, multi-billion dollar relief uh, aid package, which would have helped out the Midwestern states suffering from flooding, California wildfires, and of course the hurricane relief. There was some money in there for Puerto Rico. That's the biggest sticking point. And Mary Alice, uh, it is the food stamps issue, as we saw in those tweets from President Trump, that uh, is sort of uh, uh, the biggest point of contention. Democrats say $600 million in the bill is not enough. He says the whole thing is too much for Puerto Rico. Right. Too much for Puerto Rico, but as a result, hurting the rest of the country. I mean, there's a pretty fundamental idea in this country that when natural disaster strikes, the federal government is going to be there. And they have been in the past. Normally, we see aid packages like this sort of sail through Congress. So the idea that this failed was pretty unbelievable. Uh, but I'm surprised by the numbers uh, that the president is just throwing out about yeah, Puerto Rico. they do a fact check. And Absolutely. you may want to put up, but, you know, one of the uh, claims the president has been making, it is important to point out that 95, $91, $91. billion dollars has been spent in Puerto Rico. That's actually not true. It's just grossly inflated. Uh, most calculations show just around 10 or 11 
$7 billion has been sent, spent in recovery from Puerto Rico, uh, maybe double of that allocated to be rolled out in the next few years. Obviously, that's nowhere near $90 billion. The president continuing to just inflate the numbers. And members of both parties on Capitol Hill today were sounding off on this threat because not only do they have opinions on Puerto Rico, but it's holding up the aid package uh, writ large. Here's a little bit of what we've been hearing today up on Capitol Hill about this debate. I think he believes that Puerto Rico has been flooded with money, that we're throwing money at Puerto Rico without really much of a plan to see how it's being spent, that he thinks that it's just been, you know, every time we turn around there's more money for Puerto Rico rather than it's the money we've already provided, which is disproportionate to the other states affected. Uh, states affected. Uh, I think that's his driving force, but there'll be a compromise. I'm from the southeast. South Carolina, we were hit hard. We got to fix this. I don't mind being generous to Puerto Rico, but there's got to be some analysis of what generous looks like. I don't think he quite understands that these are Americans in Puerto Rico. He thinks they're foreigners in some foreign country. They're Americans. They're entitled to our helping hand, just as Americans across the board, whatever state they live in, would be entitled to it. So, in the case of Puerto Rico, what's the big deal? Uh, anybody in Puerto Rico that's going to qualify for aid under FEMA, those laws have been the same for such a long period of time for, uh, for probably dozens of disasters. And there's never been any question about it. If you as an individual qualify, you are eventually going to get the money. And the money's in the pot when you start the fiscal year, and when it runs out, it's replenished on a consensus basis. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is a lot of Americans uh, are really struggling right now in Puerto Rico because of the aftermath uh, of Hurricane Maria. And joining us now to give uh, shed some light on that firsthand experience in Puerto Rico uh, is Esther Caro. She's the executive director uh, of AMPI, a nonprofit social services organization uh, in Maya West, Puerto Rico. Uh, Esther, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you work a lot uh, very closely with families uh, on the ground who are still struggling to get on their feet after the hurricane. Um, paint us a picture of what the situation is in your community, uh, both before uh, the hurricane and, and now. What, what's that experience been like? Well, um, since we started helping the people from Puerto Rico in the western coast where AMPI is located, uh, we began seeing so many families that had so dire need uh, for help, just not rebuilding their homes, but uh, many of them, and, and as I said before, were in the safest area of Puerto Rico where the hurricane wasn't that bad. And we still at this date have thousands of families still searching for help. And I must say, none of the help we are providing has come through the money of the federal government. The money we use in our organization has come from different sources, from the Hispanics that go back and forth uh, between Puerto Rico and the United States as American citizens that we are, and they decided to help their fellow Americans that live in Puerto Rico with their donations. So our organization has done plenty for over 750 families, and none of it has been used in federal money. 
It's, it's, it's a great charity, uh, active charity that your organization uh, is doing. We know that. We've seen some evidence of it online, obviously, to be applauded. Um, what role do you think the federal government needs to have, though, uh, in doing and supporting the work you're doing, specifically when it comes to food stamps? Do you see an impact right now because of the underfunding, uh, the expiring funding for food stamps in Puerto Rico? Yes, as a matter of fact, um, we get to talk to the people day by day because we work hand in hand with them in their in their communities. And since they received just recently, they received a cut on their food stamps uh, allowance, almost to 50 percent, and some people more than 50 percent. We just had a person come and visit us letting us know that he's had to go out in the streets to peddle for money in order to be able to meet his his uh, intake, his food intake for the month since he got the cut from the food stamps. So it's, it's really hitting hard, especially our people with disabilities, our elderly people, because the food stamp cut has been uh, all through the families. It doesn't really identify families that are overtaking money or that have a lot of other uh, help available. It's been hitting people that depend only on food stamp for their survival. And I must remind uh, the people listening to us that Puerto Rico has always been unfairly treated in things like the SSI uh, benefit that the United States uh, residents receive to help people with disabilities, and Puerto Rico does not receive that benefit. So we have been unfairly treated for many reasons and in for many years in many other things, and now it's become the same thing with the food stamps. A lot of frustration lot of there, a lot of frustration up on Capitol Hill. Esther Caro, Executive Director of AMPI, a nonprofit social services organization in Puerto Rico. Thanks so much, Esther, uh, for sharing a little bit uh, of that firsthand experience right now. Uh, a million people, Mary Alice, a million Americans, 43% of Puerto Ricans are on food stamps. Uh, and we should note that the Puerto Rican government has had to cut back on the food stamp distribution because of this funding impasse with Congress. So a lot of, a lot at stake And that's right after now. nearly 3,000 Americans died as a result that's of right. the hurricane. <clears throat> you know, I think she raised an important point that, that is circling around this debate, and that's whether or not Puerto Rico is just treated differently and unfairly, and whether or not the response would have been different if they were part of mainland United States. Speaking of being treated unfairly and differently, uh, today is National Pay Equality Day, or Equal Pay Day, if you like. Uh, it's a big day around the country to focus on what has been a historic gap in pay uh, in gender in this country. Women, on average, earn 80 cents to the dollar that men earn uh, in most of their jobs. And today... White women. White women. That's right. It's The gap is, is much starker for women of color, to be sure. Good point, Mary Alice. Um, today, a little bit of news on this front. The House just passed the Paycheck Fairness Act to try to close some loopholes from the 1963 landmark legislation for uh, for closing that gap. But it's gonna, it's, this is an intractable problem. It's going on for a long time, and by some estimates, it's it's not going to end anytime soon. But what's been really encouraging, I think, in my generation is the new era of financial literacy among women and professional women, women who are sticking together, who are trying to talk about these issues and brainstorm ways to fight back in the workplace. They sure have, and that uh, brings us to uh, our next guest, who uh, is, is one of the leading advocates of pay 
appreciate transparency. Zulima Aspinall is the Vice President of Global, Advocate, Global Affairs uh, at Starbucks, uh, one of the 25 companies that today that is out uh, promoting uh, this idea of equal pay, pay transparency. Uh, Zulima, great to have you with us. Um, so I want to start by just asking you what Starbucks is doing that's getting so much attention right now and sort of leading the way to close the pay gap. So thank you for having me. And it's really important, I think, that we take this opportunity as we look at Equal Pay Day and how we can highlight both the significance of the wage gap and what we can do in order to overcome it. Um, it's very exciting for us to be able to join with so many other companies through the Employers for Pay Equity around a set of shared principles that we believe will provide a framework for companies large and small are working to address and overcome the wage gap. So, as I understand it, uh, Starbucks, your organization, joining Pepsi, Chobani, Ikea, Deloitte, other big American names to sort of endorse a list of principles to help close the gap. One of them that uh, grabbed my attention was this idea that uh, you're encouraging employees at Starbucks to openly and honestly talk about uh, their wages. That's sort of something that's always been taboo. So we've been looking at this issue for over a decade, and over that time, we've created a set of best practices that has helped us close this gap and address the issue. And looking at, at best practices such as encouraging our employees, what we call our partners, to talk openly about wage, not asking about prior salary history when we're interviewing potential candidates. All of these are really important foundational principles for us to address this issue. And one of the exciting things about working for the Employers for Pay Equity Consortium is that we're open sourcing these principles and practices and learning from so many other companies, both large and small, on different points of their journey. Um, because the, the most important thing that we've learned is we can't operate in a silo uh, and we do much better when we work with others and partner with others on this issue. So what is the first thing that you are telling women, and especially women of color, to do to make sure that they are standing up for themselves in the workplace? I think it's an expectation that our partners have of the kind of company that they want to work for. So at Starbucks, we see pay equity as one piece of trying to create an equitable workplace that supports our, all of our partners, including women and families. So this means benefits like comprehensive health care or free college tuition or parental leave. Pay equity is a critical piece of that, and we recognize that it's something that's very important to our partners as well as to us as a company. So that's an expectation that we know our partners have. They're, they want to know how their companies are doing more to support them, and that's the work that we are continually doing um, in order to provide that support to them. Well, I was just going to say, and I, I hope that there will be, continue to be more research about whether or not having women like yourself in management positions helps eliminate the pay gap. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to have the, frankly, different perspectives of both race and gender at senior leadership positions. It's one of the reasons that we have a goal of increasing um, senior leadership at Starbucks, both by race and gender by 2020 because we recognize that having those differences of perspectives is critically important to support both this work, but to understand how we create systemic change. Zulima, 
Espinel, thank you so much from Starbucks. Uh, leading the way right now on the trying to close the gender gap, I think talking about it uh, is obviously a big step forward. It's great to see these conversations yeah. being had at the very least, yeah. I would say, although so much more to be done. Thanks so much, Zulima Espinel from Starbucks uh, and great points there. Let's wrap up today here in the briefing room with some 2020 headlines. Money matters big time. Our political reporter Johnny Verhovic is here. Uh, money, Johnny, is flowing into the Democratic coffers and yeah. uh, we're getting some pretty big totals now right. that well, the first I, quarter has closed. Right. And I think this who early the on... Top, who are the, the, the top dogs? Yeah, this early on in the process, we're always kind of scrambling to see what are those indicators to see how different candidates are doing. We got some new numbers over the last couple days. Um, just this morning, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who we obviously know well from the 2016 campaign, uh, announced that he raised $18.2 million in the first quarter uh, of 2019. It's so early. Which is a ve it's, it's very early, but that's, that's still an impressive number. And it's also impressive to note the number of indi individual donors uh, to his campaign, 520 25,000 uh, total, which indicates that he still does have that really engaged, active fundraising base that's going to benefit him and keep him well-resourced deep Mary, into the and campaign. Mary Alice, you covered his campaign last yeah. go-round. You said you were a little surprised that that number yeah. maybe wasn't bigger, given his, his popularity and well, his profile. And his team was hoping to reach a million donor mark. Yeah. All okay. of their email advertising in the last week had been pushing their base to try to meet that goal. They obviously didn't come close to it. Uh, but, you know, he benefited from this huge list that he had from last go-around, and he is continuing to tap into those previous supporters and asking right. them to give again. And trailing close behind we yes. have Kamala Harris have Kamala $12 Harris. million dollars Pete Buttigieg 7 million right. Pete Buttigieg 7 million I know and, and that it's number, early. We don't it's know still who early, else. But that number surprised a lot of people, especially in comparison to these numbers, because he really did come out just virtually unknown on the national mm -hmm. stage uh, and has really built his profile. And that $7 million uh, kind of lent further credence to the idea that he really is rising uh, in this campaign. He rose to 4% in a recent national poll. And, um, you know, he's definitely going to be someone who's, who's also well-resourced. One person who hasn't begun fundraising yet because he's not officially in the race right. is Joe Biden. We need to mention Joe Biden because today, Mary Alice, as, as members of Congress have come back under the Hill, Nancy Pelosi. House Speaker making some comments today about these allegations about his uh, shows of affection yep. toward women. It does seem that Democrats are sort of, high-profile Democrats at least, are sort of giving him a pass on this right uh, now. I don't know. Nancy Pelosi seemed to lay down the gauntlet. She said that he needed to pick up a brand new handshake. But not disqualifying, she said. Right. No, none of them have said it's disqualifying. Uh, largely, they've been quick to point out the comparison to the president. I was struck by comments from Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, who said, you know, he's not a sexual predator. She called the president a sexual predator. I think that Democrats want to be seen as the party that stands by women whenever women feel like they've been disrespected. And uh, good old Uncle Joe is putting right. them in a tough spot right now. And this does set up a really interesting debate in this Democratic primary about what that standard is. And if there's a, and if there is somewhat of a different standard for, for the former vice president. Um, but uh, you did, and Mary Alice talked about it, you did see some, some allies on Capitol Hill kind of come out and say, look, we know Joe Biden. We've known him for a long time and you know he's going to be judged on his record and the american people are going fascinating to, to hear that actually come up in a debate exactly. should he announce and right. join that debate stage would be an interesting topic thanks for that guys and finally we do need to just wrap up today with a bit of history that's being made right now uh, in chicago they're voting today in the runoff election for chicago mayor to succeed uh, Rahm emanuel it is two women two african-american women which means the city the largest uh, american city to they will become the largest american city to elect a black woman uh, as mayor
Yeah, it's the third largest city in the country. Either way, history going to be made today. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, who you see right there, she would also be the city's first gay mayor. And it's it's exciting, I think, for, for a city that has a large African-American population, but a city just in general, to be able to make history in this way and to see a really robust debate on the issues. These two women have gone head-to-head. -head. It's been a really competitive race, and we'll see who comes out on top. Yeah, home of the first African-American president, first right. African-American woman senator, Carol Mosley Brown. So a little bit of history in Illinois today. We'll keep an eye on there, tell you who the winner is tomorrow here in the briefing room. Thanks for watching us. Great to have Johnny Mary Alice here. I'm Devin Dwyer in Washington. Back here tomorrow, 3.30 Eastern time in the briefing room. Hope to see you then.